The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. I'm Shauna Burns. I'm a gentlewoman farmer and corporate agilist, and you're listening to the Agile Uprising podcast. Hello, welcome to another edition of the Agile Uprising podcast. I am excited today to be joined by Jay Hersko. Well, you're not excited to be joined by me. Let's be real here. It's the guest that's the draw. Okay, let me take two. Jay, <laughs> how are you doing today? Are you excited to be here to meet our I guest? I am excited. Yes, 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 100%. Okay, we we have a special guest co-host, Miss Burns. Welcome hey. Is this your very first Agile Uprising podcast? It sure is. Thank you for inviting me. We hope this is not your last and uh, you have a connection with our guest, Brandy Olson. Tell us a little bit about that, Shauna. I sure do. Well, um, the same conference that I met you, Andy, I also met Brandy and she was doing a a portion on multitasking in our organization. And it was fascinating to me to to think about how I worked and, and what we ask of people to do and then how difficult we make it for them to do the job and, and how we switch the rules on them and, and just all these different things. And I was hooked. I wanted to be, I wanted to speak more to her. I followed her around like a, um, like a fangirl. And we've been talking about this topic from time to time ever since that conference. And uh, when she published a book about the same topic, um, I dove into it and it felt like I had been interviewed for her book, all the problems that were going on. And so it was such a, obvious inspiration that we uh I try to get my favorite people to be talking about this book is Jay on that list absolutely or- first one <laughs> Jackie Brandy it's great to have you back so we talked in 2019 yeah which was like a hundred years ago a hundred years ago or longer is when we talked and around the same time that Shauna and I I met and I was first starting to really think about this whole organizational multitasking thing and what that was doing to the way so many of us work. You mentioned when we reached out to record this, that that conversation, you described it, your words were, it was a pivotal moment for me. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little more about that a million years later after that first conversation. And here you have a new book, which was, which we'll dive into. Yeah. You know, back in 2019, I was um, starting to really look at what happens when you have a, you know, not just an individual who's multitasking. I actually kind of don't care how any one of us chooses to get our work done during the day, um, unless we're having to work in ways that are really anti-human because our organization is causing us to. And so what happens when you have a team or a team of teams or an entire organization of people who are constantly spending their days context switching and multitasking and being flooded by competing priorities? And I was just starting to explore those ideas and starting to have conversations about those. So, um, you know, did the talk that Shauna mentioned, we had this conversation um, after that conference, Andy. And one of the things that started to emerge for me and why I think it was really pivotal is because I started to really see the connections in a new way in terms of how that way of working being, you know, just absolutely ruled by multitasking was causing burnout. And, you know, it was actually shortly after we had um, that conversation, a friend of mine actually asked me, he goes, 
Brandy, I don't understand. Why do you care about multitasking so much? Um, and why do you care about it? And why do you keep talking about it? And I had to really think about it because at first I thought, well, isn't it obvious? And then as I was reflecting on that, when I said back to him, what really became the driver for the ongoing research and work that I did was that too often we put people in positions where they have to choose between doing good work and their own humanity. And in most situations, I think that's an entirely false choice and one that gets in the way of us actually doing the great work that they were capable of. And so I really started to understand that multitasking, yes, it's a problem, but the bigger problem is there's an abundance of important work to do in the world. And when we work in ways that are really anti-human, we sell ourselves short. It's not that we need to lower our expectations to be more human. It's I think that our exp expectations are far too low to begin with. That's a great point. The idea of the expectations of what we have for ourselves as humans and we're we're not realistic. We're not realistic yeah. at all. So the, the book title itself is Real Flow, Break the Burnout Cycle and Unlock High Performance in the New World of Work. That's a mouthful. You start off with an analogy which permeates the entire book. And I think this is this was perfect. I, I saw it and we just had a great conversation with Joshua Karyevsky where we talk about all the great metaphors he uses. And I'm a big believer in metaphors, how we make sense of the world. You talk about the idea of a flow versus a flood in a river. Mm -hmm. And I, I believe it's it's kayaking or canoeing where the you're you're on a river and you're flipped over and your foot is stuck and mm -hmm. the difference between flowing down rapids versus the flood. And very quickly mentally, that picture for me jumped out because mm -hmm. it's a very easy way to explain to someone what we're in right now is you want to say it's flow, but it's not. We've actually flooded the system with work. Mm -hmm. And the idea of you need to slow that down in order to speed up is to your point about unrealistic expectations. I, I think you would agree. It's almost antithetical to how we actually view work in the puritanical sense of delivering work in the Western world. Yeah. In so many ways, right? We have so many cultural ideas. I call them illusions because I think we're not bad people for buying into them. They have the appearance of being nice, right? That if I'm busy, I'm important. If the work is moving fast, it must be working well. And, and I think that's the story that I tell right in the opening chapter is of me being in one of my favorite rivers in Northern Wisconsin and um, being stuck in having lost my paddle yet once again. And this is a river that I paddle a lot. And when the water's flowing, it takes a couple hours to move through this stretch of Whitewater River. But when the water is in, in the spring, when the snow is melted and the water is rushing, the water is moving so, so, so fast. Um, the irony is, and this is the situation I found myself in on that particular day, the water is moving faster than ever, but I was moving a lot slower. And if you ever have been a paddler, you know that sometimes a really fast paced river can take a lot slower and longer to navigate then when the water's, you know, just a little bit lower and it's moving at more of what, mm -hmm. you know, a flow pace, right? A flooded river moves fast. It's raging. It is exhausting, but we actually navigate it slower. And I think that's what happens in so many of our teams and organizations is the work and the pace of work is unrelenting. It is fast. It feels like it's all moving, but the reality is we're kind of stuck. In it, and we're flooded and we're not moving nearly as fast as we need to be because the pace and the environment around us is so out of control. It's an illusion and there's a buzz and there's probably a, an adrenaline rush by some of that activity theater. Mm -hmm. As as Jay, you said, you know, you, you don't want to be seen as with idle hands, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. As a, an employee in these situations, I've just, I reading through the book, I thought, gosh, in my, in, when I'm in those danger situations and I, I need to take longer to get through, um, I'm so much more stressed because I have to focus on a new goal, which is staying alive and like making it through. Um, but I also realized like, especially lately, my responses are clipped. I'm not showing up with empathy or any kind of humility and, and, so then people are having a harder time working with me because I'm struggling with the rate of work that's coming in. Mm -hmm. You're right. It, it doesn't allow us to be our best selves because we're, we're forced into, we're forced into a flooded river. 
Mm-hmm. And that's not where we chose to be. I thought I was, thought I was coming here for a flowing good time. And next thing you know, I'm paddling for dear life. And what's that movie with Kevin Bacon where he's behind me yelling and screaming and we got the rapids <laughs> up ahead. Uh, it, it's, it's very, very true. Um, one of the other things I wanted to compliment you on Brandy is the, the, the thing that I never thought about until this book was we all talk about the cost of organizational multitasking. And we talk about the 20% drain that it takes when we go from A to B. On page 33, and I've, I've, truthfully, I probably owe your royalties because I've taken pictures of this page and spread it in all these decks that I've owned. You didn't read the copyright. may not be reproduced in (laughs) any form, but I give attribution. I give attribution. The idea of if I'm working on two things, I don't lose just 20%. I lose 40% because the 20% is the assumption I go from A to B. Mm-hmm. It's not it's not the reality that I go from A to B to A to B to A to B to A. I mean, realistically, that 40% can realistically become 60%. I become 80%. I had never heard anyone say it that way, phrase it that way. And I when I read that, I, I literally just stopped and went, well, shit. Because mm-hmm. that is the perfect sales point without trying to make a sales point that this is what happens when you try to do two things at once. Yeah. And the research is really, really clear on this, right? So, well, I don't actually care how each of us individually choose to navigate our to-do list. Um, There are some very particular ways that each of our brains navigate our to-do list. That's just really unavoidable. And the research is really, really clear. And that's where um, understanding what it means when we say we're context switching. Um, And the cost of that comes into play because what the research says is um, if you're trying to do to switch back and forth between two tasks at one time, you'll spend about 20 to 40% of your brain power um, context switching, managing the switch, which shows up, you know, and we don't have to go into all the nuances of executive function, what's happening in your brain. Um, There's a lot of really good reasons why that's happening. Um, If you're doing three projects, at the same time and the scales. So whether it's three complex tasks, whether it's three projects, it scales to goals, initiatives, features, take your pick, the pattern Mm -hmm. scales. Um, You'll spend about 60% of your time and not just your time, but your brain power. And when I say brain power, what the research tells us is it's literally the calories that your brain uses and the amount of oxygen that your brain needs to manage the switch going back and forth, you'll spend that on just managing the switch, which means you have, you know, 30, 40% of your capacity to actually do the work. And where it gets really, really startling is when you scale that and say, okay, so say we have, um, you know, we pay somebody $100,000 a year and we ask them to work on many competing priorities at the same time, spending about 60% of their salary on just having them switch back and forth. And those are probably not the skills that we hired them for. And they're not the skills that add the most value to our organization. Now imagine you've got like a team of 10 people or a team of a hundred people or a hundred thousand people. How much money are we spending just having people just manage going to from switch a to B. back and forth between competing priorities? But there's there's clearly something that is there's an underlying belief that is driving mm-hmm. organizations at, at scale to continue on this in spite yep. of the studies, whether you, we, we have so many five minute exercises <laughs> we can do with mm-hmm. leaders as coaches and trainers and and change agents to go look and they're like, yeah, I get it. I get it. But you know, there's always a but. And so. Yep. What did some of your research and and uh, empirical evidence show? What are the underlying beliefs that is holding that in place? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because if research was all we needed, we'd be shifting gears really quickly. I've never met a leader who looked me straight in the face and said, I think focus is bad. Right. No, I, I've never met a leader who would disagree with the premise that focus is what we need. And yet... Many good leaders are stuck in organizational systems that are just creating this flood. And I think that it, I think it comes from a few places, but I think one of the first is that when we start talking about burnout, 
working in more humane ways or the cost of multitasking, I think there's something inside of us that immediately raises a flag that makes us think that you're going to have to tell, you're going to tell me we need to do less. We're going to have to lower our expectations. And that's not an option. We have an abundance of important work. And yeah, we can talk about finding all, you know, doing only the important stuff. But if you lead an organization that deals with a lot of regulatory work, or, you know, I'm working with an organization right now that um, works in biotherapeutic cancer treatments, lives are on the line in their work. So you can't tell me to do less. That's not an option. So it's easy to just shut off everything else. Doing less isn't an option. Lowering standards isn't an option. Um, Lowering expectations isn't an option. And those are like those cultural illusions that kind of seep in that say, ooh, we can't talk about working in sustainable ways. I want to, but I also can't afford to do less. And I think that the reality is that we are already set. Like I said this before, like we're settling for expectations that are already too low because we think that it means, um, settling for less, doing less. And when we're dealing with the high pressure of a lot of critical work, it feels like those things are in conflict. And the, the, the other thing that I think gets seeped into our psyche is all of the ways that we associate with, um, busyness, doing a lot at the exact same time as a status symbol. Right. And so that makes it incredibly hard for us to look at our organizational ecosystem and see it through a different lens. Cause we keep seeing it through the lens of those cultural illusions and values. And I'll add one more thing. Cause I think this is the, the third, like thing that makes it so hard. The same part of our brain that is responsible for all the context switching, it's the executive functioning capacity in our brain. And the, what is true about every single human brain is we can only do one executive function at a time. Effectively. So the same part of our brain that's responsible for context switching is also the same part of our brain that's responsible for perspective shifting. It's prefrontal cortex. Yep. Yep. And we can only context switch or perspective shift at the same time. So if we are spending all of our days managing the flood of competing priorities, switching back and forth, back-to-back meetings, back-to-back priorities, spreading ourselves really thin, our brains literally struggle to do the work to make meaning of what's happening around us, to consider that there might be a different way to look at this flood of important work and how to get it done. So I think those things all combine together to be this huge force that makes it really hard to see things differently and to change. There might be one more thing, and I don't know where it's in the brain, the reward system. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've always understood reward to be more primal and, and more in that, you know, amygdala, right? So is it a, a combination of things that you can't you can't stop because you're so damn busy to pull back and think? but you're being rewarded for having eight meetings deep and all mm-hmm. these things to get done and yada, yada, yada. Yeah. I think that's a huge part of it. And it mixes right in how our brain and our nervous system engage with all of this, what we perceive to help us survive, what we perceive to be a threat. That's all a mix in there that again, makes it challenging to look at things differently, um, but not impossible. Right. And, and when right. we start to bring awareness to that, that, ooh, maybe there's a part of me that thrives on that feeling of being flooded all the time. There's a bit of a rush and an urgency, or maybe I have actually been rewarded, right, for saying yes. Yes, we can get that done. Yes, we can get that done. Yes, 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 yes. Um, that behavior is often rewarded in the short term because nobody wants to hear it not right now. Nobody wants to. It's hard to say which next thing should we get done. That's real hard thing to ask, it's a lot easier to say, sure, we'll start it all. And, um, and it's much more convenient that way too. And so we have these loops in our brains and our bodies and the ways that we work that, um, we have to kind of interrupt to start looking at things differently. So much of this comes down to biology. So much of this comes down to biology. And there, there was, um, Ian McGilchrist just uh, his recent books where he talks about the left brain, right brain, whereas we typically view one as creative and one as um, arithmetical. He said, we're looking at things the wrong way. That's not how our brains work. 
Our left brain takes pictures. Our right brain takes a movie. Mm-hmm. So that's why the left brain is typically viewed as analytical because it views everything as point in time. Whereas our right brain is crafting the narrative because it's viewing multiple pictures at the same mm-hmm. time. And when we try and multitask, we're using the picture brain and then we're saying, no, it's different movie, different movie, change the movie, change the movie. And it's, we're, we're, we're literally like crossing ourselves and, and driving ourselves insane um, uh, over over something that we are biologically, here we go, we're fighting biology. We are biologically not set up to do yet. I'm sure Elon Musk will figure out how to reprogram us, give him long enough time. Um, but that is, what, to your point, Brandy, we need to deal with the limitations that we have biologically. And our brains are truthfully optimized to make quick decisions. Why? That's why we boil everything down to a false binary, because we're trying to conserve calories. So when I only have A or B, it's a lot easier to make that decision than I have A through Z, way more calories. And we're also optimized to belong as part of a group, mm-hmm. whether it's family, clan, tribe, city, state, right? And and so the minute you don't say yes, you could be pushed outside the circle of safety. Yes. Mm-hmm. So th- there's a big part, um, I forget where it is in your book, where we talk about changing the system we live in, mm-hmm. changing the ecosystem. Yep. Um, with mm-hmm. a simple word that has two letters that is the most difficult to say in corporate America, it's no. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think part of what becomes so challenging about that is we do have this binary. It's either yes or no. I mean, that those are all the options we often have available to us. And we look at that as if, um, well, and that just gets us stuck, right? It just gets us stuck in this, this way of thinking that is really keeps us working against what we're capable of. And I think Jay, you know, one of the things that you bring up is something that I look at all the time, which is it's a lot harder to work against our human evolution and try to turn humans into something that they're not. When humans are in fact highly capable of solving problems and being creative and adaptive, um, it's a lot easier and more simple to design our organizations to work with humans um, than try to turn humans into something you know more like machines. And we'll get a lot more of the real work done the sooner we accept and embrace that reality um, and then move forward, right? As opposed to trying to bend reality to be something else. And this is the part where this is the part where I was giddily screaming as I'm reading my Kindle copy. And it's because we we are currently working on a series where we're talking about the idea of metaphor and how we work. Uh, it's I think we call it the Metaphors Matter series. And traditionally, organizations, companies are treated like they're machines. Uh, parts are hot swappable. Pieces are hard swappable. People, that's the analogy we use. That's a metaphor we use as a machine. Whereas you talk about the whole idea of machine thinking versus ecosystem thinking. Right. And part of our Metaphors Matter series is the idea of using biology to our advantage. We are biological systems. The Latin roots of organism and organization are not the same, but they're close enough. Whereas we need to think as more of that, you know, it's a cliche term of system thinking, but it's so much more than that. You bring that up, Brandy, that idea of thinking about it in terms of an ecosystem, not as a machine that should be optimized, but as a living organism that could be utilized to its fullest to its best extent, if we work smarter. And that is a, that is, I, I honestly think that's, again, Giddy J was screaming in his Kindle. That is a true paradigm shift that I think maybe is the next thing we need to encounter. We need to inculcate into what we do. And it's just <laughs> over so many people's heads. But can, can you, in your words, can you explain a little bit more, do better justice than I just, my ham-fisted definition? Um, how do you explain those two concepts and how they interrelate? Yeah, so I think the, you know, academic field would be systems thinking, right, or human adaptive systems. And there's a lot of really brilliant people, um, Glenda Eong, Edward, or Dave Snowden, that um, have done really great work in this space. But a lot of that work is not super accessible to a really overwhelmed and flooding leader who's trying to just figure out how to get the work done that needs to be done this week. And yeah, they do know that they need to do things differently because they can see and feel the burnout everywhere, but they're just trying to survive the flood, right? And so I um, I wrote the chapter 
in the book on that, right? The machine paradigm versus the ecosystem paradigm. And I worked really, really hard to strip out the jargon in it and to help us really understand what it means. Because I do think the lens through which we look at our organization is critical. So the the story that I tell in the book is um, of my uh neighbor down the street who loves a lemonade stand, right? And every time my neighbor puts out their lemonade stand, especially in the summer, she makes uh, buckets of money, lots of tips and sells lots of lemonade. And um, a few years ago, this was happening. Another friend who was in an MBA program and one of her professors assigned that um, group to create a lemonade stand business, right? Sounds simple. Apply all these business principles and concepts to a classic business, right? Good lemonade. And, um, and what was so interesting about that is that, you know, MBA friend of mine and their team, right? They had, they looked at their inputs and their resources and the math on it and their customer experience of who's going to buy lemonade, applying all of their best principles to it. But then the math never like quite works out. And, and one of the things that I noticed is this was all happening in the same summer about my neighbor's lemonade stand is that people aren't actually buying the lemonade from her they're buying the experience. They're buying the interaction, right? You don't buy lemonade from a kid's lemonade stand because you really want that lemonade. You buy it because you want the interaction with a kid. You want to reward their ingenuity. And the reason their lemonade stand isn't successful is successful isn't because they've got their inputs and outputs dialed in. It's because they've got like an adult system that's helping them get to the store and making it safe for them to put their lemonade stand out on the street. Right. And I think that's at the heart of the difference between a machine paradigm and an ecosystem paradigm. And the machine paradigm, which many of our organizations are modeled to exist after, right? It looks at our departments, our inputs, our people, um, and their time and their energy and the cost of goods and all of these things as if an organization is made up of all of its parts and it's the parts that matter. So in a machine paradigm, what matters most is the parts, and that they all add up. And so in a machine, you get to add your parts up or you get to subtract them. You get added, add and subtraction. And you can clearly define the performance of that machine by energy and product mm-hmm. out. And, yes. and build that mindset, which I think drives the optimize your fungible resources, your meat bags, mm-hmm. right? To keep them busy where it all falls apart. And, mm-hmm. But, but switching that mindset, man. Well, and so this is where I think it, where we start to have success shifting the mindset, because that, that would be so convenient if it worked that way. It adds up nicely on paper. It looks great in an org chart. And if we could do good work that way, it would be terribly, it would be incredibly convenient, right? Um, The problem is, and this is where I start to have success shifting the mindset, is it's just not reality. So if we can't agree on reality, like the basic of how do humans do good work together, it's so hard to shift the mindset. And I don't say that despairingly of people who are struggling with that machine paradigm. A lot of times we don't even recognize that that's the lens through which we look at our organizations. The ecosystem lens offers us something that's, I think, much more appealing. And what an ecosystem offers us, and using the lens of an ecosystem, how different parts and components interact to create something that wouldn't exist without the interaction, what's appealing there is that we're not constrained by the addition and subtraction math of a machine. What we actually get is exponential possibility. And that's what happens when you have something like a rainforest, right? All the parts of the rainforest work together to create oxygen and remove carbon from the atmosphere. Any one tree or collection of trees or component of species wouldn't be capable of doing that on their own. But together, you get the system working together and they're capable of so much more. Yeah. What do you think about Shana? I just wanted to let you know. So um, I recently bought a farm, which is very different than my corporate agile career. And in so doing, we started to make a plan and we started to learn what it was to be a steward of land. Mm -hmm. And in that I came across permaculture and how we plan for energy conservation. And I just 
I'm, I'm gonna, I'm looking for my favorite quote of yours. And of course, I'm not going to see it right now. But just um, that we need to re we need to redefine for ourselves, like what a successful plan looks like, and what is the right amount of energy to put out and like the beauty of any kind of farming is my sprint day is sunrise to sunset and I'm not working deep into the night and nobody's high-fiving me like if I did something deep into the night like there's always tomorrow to work mm -hmm. on the solution and the other thing that I've been finding is that agile is springing up all over farming and it doesn't feel like an accident <laughs> because <laughs> we're trying to figure out how do we get this system to feed all the inputs, to, to take mm -hmm. care of itself. And then I'm going to take that energy because I don't have to manage it anymore. And I can focus on making this part better. And, and then it starts cycle. And then we're building better. We've got strong roots. We've got a good water mm -hmm. flow. Like all of that feels like a really great software development team too. <laughs> when things are going well, um, we become the nourishment, the air for one another, and we're helping one another so much. Mm -hmm. But when it's a struggle, it's hard. Yeah. I mean, so like what you're describing, that's what I think flow is, right? Uh -huh. When all of the pieces are working together to create a, a flow, right? Something that's um, bigger and more capable than any, than some, than anything we'd be capable of on our own. And then, you know, you think about um, that ecosystem and applying that lens to an organization, the flow of what I would say matters most, which is value. How do we create and flow ideas all the way into things that add value for people outside of our organizations who are willing to interact with us um, to have that value, right. Or to have that benefit. And that's, what's possible. But it takes us really, again, kind of um, rejecting some of those cultural illusions that keep us so tied to that machine paradigm and welcoming the interconnection um, that, that happens when you have people working together in a really highly collaborative way. And what's possible there is unknown, right? Like that's where there is no ceiling on what's possible. And that's where I think we put the ceiling too low most of the time because we put so much of our energy into really effect ineffective ways of working. And so we're never capable of seeing what is actually possible. But there's so much pressure to make that quarterly shareholder call good. Yep. <laughs> to deliver that new thing, right? And yep. and so it's like, hey Shauna, you put it you put the tomato seeds in. I, I need a bushel of tomatoes next week. What the hell are you mm -hmm. gonna do? You're going to yeah. pour all kinds of horrible things and destroy your ecosystem. Right. Um, you have a big part of the book where you where you describe the key signals that you're destroying your ecosystem. Can you remind us what some of those leading indicators of org flooding were? Mm, yeah, so many leading indicators of org flooding. Things as one of the like most straightforward ways to understand if your organization is flooding is to look at everybody's calendars. How long does it take to get the right people into the same conversation? And this is where it's really important to recognize that if you're the leader of that division, you might be able to get everybody into a conversation at the same time quickly. Um, but if people on your team are struggling to get people into the right conversation or they're dealing with back-to-back-to-back-to-back to back to back to back meetings all the time. That's just an indication that your organization is flooded, right? That you're dealing with and probably managing and putting a lot more of your energy into managing all that low-value back-to-back meeting work than doing the real work. And I think this comes back to what do you want your shareholders? What do you want to tell your shareholders? And what do you want to show for your performance? If you actually need to get some significant things done in your organization, then you can't afford to waste so much time and energy on the switching back and forth on the managing competing priorities. Yeah. Another thing that reveals to me often a flooding organization is when I ask the question, how do decisions get made? If everybody doesn't know the same, have the same answer to that question, it means you are putting in a significant amount of energy collectively into swirling 
decisions and and effective decision-making that's low value, right? Um, And the math to that point, the math has proven that decision latency um, mm -hmm. lead Jim Johnson did that whole thing from the standards group. The longer you take to make a decision, not only is it typically less effective, it, mm -hmm. it can more often than not be the wrong decision, but the, the, you want, we're back to our brains, right? <clears throat> the draw, you know, the reason why Steve Jobs and Einstein wore the same outfit every day mm -hmm. was because we have a, we have a decision capacity every yep. day where after a while it's just like, what do we have for dinner? I don't really care. I don't really mm -hmm. care. It, we run out of it. So yep. to your point, wh why would we drag it out and make it painful to arrive at one decision mm -hmm knowing that there's going to be, because I have 6,000 30 minute meetings back to back, another decision mm -hmm. and then another decision and then another mm -hmm. decision coming right on the back of that. Yeah. And those things are what surface, um, you know, other things that surface are, you know, things like burnout, um, mm. resignations, employee retention, um, difficulty responding to change, right? I'm struggling with uh, quality, like these things surface. And one of the things that happens is we see the problem at the surface and we just start trying to solve it on the surface. And one of the things that I hope to create more awareness to and what we, what helps us make more significant changes, connecting the dots that how we choose our work, how we prioritize our work and how, and really the heart of it is how much work we do at the same time. Mm contributes to and cause and perhaps causes um things like poor quality and lack of clear decision making ineffective collaboration difficulty responding to change and so it's not that we need to do less work necessarily in fact i can i can start at the starting point of the work you're doing is important let's start there and say it's not that you need to do less work it's that how much work we pursue at any given time impacts how much work we're going to get done. Yeah. And if you need to get it all done, then how much you do at any given time is perhaps the most important thing that you need to pay attention to as a leader. Otherwise, you will continue to perpetuate this environment where we're flooded, we're spending all of our time in meetings, we're not getting a lot of things done, and the pressure grows and builds because we're not getting done what we need to get done. The solution sounds so simple. Limit your batch size, limit your whip. It, it really is, right? Like uh, Steve Tendon said, if if your team, if somebody in your team finishes the story, the human nature is to, well, we just pick up the next story. And his remark was, well, maybe the best thing for that person to do is go fishing. Just mm -hmm. grab a rod and a reel and, or grab a kayak. Go whitewater mm -hmm. rafting because you putting more value into the system is is not helping. I have a question or a discussion point, but I'm going to tag team it off you, Andy. So Andy and I recently finished Framers by Ken Kulkier. And it was really one of those like mind blown type type uh, reads. Andy, you came up with a, a question I think you had regarding framing and bias. What was what was that question around? Oh, my goodness. Um, I think it was something we were talking about because we had the Andy and I were having this conversation back and forth over chat before it actually made its way out to the dock. I think it was around um, implicit frames were leading to mm. things like discrimination or bias or what are what are the frames that we're using, Brandy, that that land us in this spot? And is there a way to to frame our reframe our way out of it? Yes. Right. I, I think the place that it starts is and you use the word implicit. And I think that's really important when the paradigm, the frame, the model, the principles that we're using to choose our work, make decisions and organize our teams and our organizations when they're implicit, meaning we don't talk about them directly, we can't examine them. And one of the things that I think is incredibly important is to start making, making the ecosystem that we do live in and exist in Clear. So I talk about like visualizing the work. I worked with a company a few years ago and they were dealing with a ton of um, retention, a lot of employee turnover. And one of the things that we did to help them see the challenge of that was I had their team get in a room back in the day when we got in rooms um, and put all of the um, work that they didn't do in the last six months, like on the board. Right. Because they were because one of the challenges was every new team member that was coming on board had to be onboarded, had to meet everybody. Just talk about the number of one on ones 
that they were doing because they kept onboarding lots of new team members. Those things are valuable and you can't avoid them. We started with their leadership group, filling the wall of the opportunity cost because they were spending so much time onboarding new team members. What weren't they doing? And it was shocking and startling and sobering to look at what they didn't do over the last six months because they were putting so much attention towards onboarding new team members. Um, As part of that work, we also engaged their HR partners, right? We got all the, because it wasn't just a um, team member problem. It was an HR problem. You can recruit and recruit and recruit and make lots and lots of hires. And if you're still putting them into a system that is not designed for them to do good work, they're not going to stay very long, right? Um, So I think part of it comes back to making more visible what our ecosystem, what our system actually looks like, what our organization is actually designed for. And that can come through putting things up on the wall, like the work. Other ways to make those frames and systems really visible is to chart out like the path of a decision. I'll have a lead, I worked with an organization once and I asked that question, how does a decision get made? And every single person from the executive vice president of the division to like an individual contributor had different answers to the question. So I asked that executive vice president to just walk through it with me, right? Like how does a decision get made and how do people learn about it, right? Um, He was shocked to see his answer to that and the answer to his team or that his team had to that question. The context of the type of decision Mm -hmm. and what domain the decision is in all impacts how that decision should be made. The favorites, the examples are, you know, the trash cans on fire, you don't need a committee to decide mm-hmm. to get the fire extinguisher to put it out, mm-hmm. right? Yep. And, and so the individual's frame of reference for what a decision is, is, is pretty important. Well, and that's where, you know, I mean, that's an example where we bring our cultural experience, we bring our biases, our cognitive biases, those shortcuts that our brain is doing all the time to help us you know, try to be friendly and help us make a better decision, which sometimes gets us into all sorts of problems. Um, we bring all of that to bear in what we, how we understand um, the work that's happening, even something like what, what counts as a decision, right? But rarely do we, I, I was going to say, rarely do we talk about that. I think actually in many agile teams, we talk about that a lot and it gets really explicit, right? So the team framework that many agile teams use gives and helps us to have really explicit understanding about who gets to make what decisions and how do we make decisions that impact our team. When you get outside of that team structure, it starts to get murkier and murkier. Um, And that's where we start to pay a higher cost. Or sometimes I think about it like a tax for that ambiguity and lack of clarity and alignment um, for that holding the overhead of all the competing priorities and all the things we always say yes to. So you had a, there was a, I don't know if it was a quote, but there was a chunk of the book where you just hinted at the idea of culture, right? Organizational mm-hmm. culture. Yeah. And one of the, one of the, and I've never heard a phrase this way, which made me, made my, again, my spider sense tingle was the idea of shifting a culture through the concept of flow and mm. using flow as the um, I, I don't want to say swivel point, but the the linchpin by which you can change your culture. Um, can we talk a little bit more about that? Because I think it's it's a, those two things. Not not to say they're incongruent, but they're not usually put in the same sentence. And that was a very novel idea. Can you can you give us a little bit more on that? Yeah. Well, why don't you tell me for a minute? Like, what did that make you think of, and why did that strike you as um, unexpected? Well, I never, I just never had seen those two words put together. I, I, after reading it, it makes total sense because mm-hmm. we're always talking about the Kennedy statement and the vision. And, you know, we we're going to put, we're going to safely put a man on the moon and return him within the next 10 years. That big, that big thing that everybody can look at and go, ah, that North mm-hmm. Star thing. And we, and then the other side of our mouth, we talk about changing culture and culture change is difficult because we're not, we're not meat widgets. We're all independent people mm-hmm. and all that. So using flow as the linchpin by which, look, this is the, this is the primary, this is the prime directive that we're all trying to get to establish a yeah. state of flow inside of our organizations so that the value just, it just happens. Mm-hmm. And using that as a, not only a linchpin, but a North star, but also a rallying cry. I never thought of, I never put that together, 
Mm. And then in hindsight, I, I'm kind of kicking myself. Like, why wouldn't I put that together? It's the simplest, you know, it's the simplest yeah. thing in the world. It just explain. I'm just trying to get more value through your system. I'm not trying to yeah. make you be different. We're just trying to deliver value. So the reason it goes together for me and why I see it, um, I think it goes together whether we see it together or not. It's one of those, it's just reality. And, and the reason is because the way that we shift culture is through doing real work together. And that is what, you know, I think one of the reasons culture change is so challenging is because usually it exists outside of our real work. The, you know, maybe it's HR that's looking at culture change, or maybe you've got a, a leader who knows, you know, we want to shift our culture, but that's, we look at culture as another initiative, another task, another goal, another objective, right alongside all of the other stuff, as opposed to recognizing that culture is the river that we swim in. Right. Right. Mm. It's the water we exist in. And so we can't change it if we're not also changing how we move through it. And the, the only way that I have found to do that significantly and meaningfully and in a lasting way is to do it through real work. Um, because, you know, you even think about the culture of collaboration, the most effective way to build a healthy, high performing team that trusts each other is to give them real work and, and help them and support them to do real work together. Um, I don't think you can separate them and get an outcome that you want. Yes. And I think there was one more thing that you dropped into that river that was um, surprising, but also wonderful. You talked about teams, high performance, doing real work, but the importance of diversity of thought and opinion and background. And I know, mm -hmm. Shauna, that's that's a subject that you're passionate about as well. Recently, I've been really focused on what my personal struggles are mentally, physically, and that that makes it harder to show up fully at work. And so this last in my 44th year of life, I've learned a lot of things about myself that actually make it really hard to work. And so as I'm listening and as I was reading through your book, especially when we're talking about executive functioning and pre 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 frontal cortex, I'm like, oh, I'm not good at those things. Like I have diagnosis that says you don't, you're not good at that. <laughs> and then I'm in an org that's not very good at it. And then we're supposed to like figure it out. And so I have really been on this searching mission this last year of how do I make all everything much more visual, not just like what the devs are working on, but how do I make um, my goal more visible? Because that speaks to a lot of people in a different way. And because I don't know how people can show up in a meeting, what will resonate with them. I'm really trying to think about, okay, have I made sure that I've got something written down in text. I've got something that's visual. And am I giving everybody in the room breadcrumbs so that they don't have to work harder than I am mm. in this conversation? And I find, especially in software development, we're constantly tasking people to solve things in the fly, in their head, and like no <laughs> diagram mm -hmm. in front of them. And so I've just really been thinking about what makes it hard to work together as human beings and and all all of this the biology stuff like how we come together and 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 group up um in our work and how we get to a solution how are we supporting one another i just kept finding all these references in your book of how we've been kind of coming to work together because it's important to reach everybody. I need, I need everybody's input or else we have very lame code that doesn't, you know, has big holes in the algorithms because only a certain subsect are, are represented in the code. Like all of these are foundationally, they've really changed how I show up as a scrum master and as a human. Um, and, and also gives me like a little like, oh, it's not all my fault. <laughs> my fault. <laughs> yeah, well, and what I love about what you're sharing is that you're, you're revealing and you're uncovering what is fundamentally true, which is human beings are quite exceptional in their capacity for collaboration 
and communication and problem solving, especially when given the space to do that. And so something as like, I won't even say something as simple as visualization, because I don't think it's simple at all. Something as powerful as visualizing information, making it more transparent. There's a lot of cognitive science that shows when we're dealing with a complex challenge, one strategy to help our brains navigate it is to make it bigger. So our brains respond to the information differently if it's stuck in a spreadsheet versus if it's bigger on a wall, um, because our brains interact with that information differently. And I think that so, I mean, it just goes so many of the ways that we've been told we need to work well and work efficiently together. So anti-human, um, yeah. and it is the divergent thinking that creates new possibilities. Um, so that's an, you know, another example of when I say we're settling for things that are far too less or expectations that are far too low and we're capable of exponential performance. What creates exponential possibility is divergent thinking, um, different perspectives, um, looking at a problem from different lenses and angles. Um, that's the interaction that really is at the heart of what it means to have an ecosystem as an organization to use that lens. It's because it's um, quantum physicists, in their research about like what makes the world fundamental. We used to think for a very long time um, that it was particles, that particles were the smallest thing uh -huh. in our universe. And there was a lot of discussion in the 19th century and debate between biologists and physicists because biologists kept talking about the ecosystems and, and that that's what made um, us exist as a universe. And quantum physicists wanted to get down to the most simple element to understand the universe. And the more they started doing that, they dug deeper and deeper. And I'm not going to remember the name of the particular physicist off the top of my head, but it is in my book. Um, th th what they discovered was the smallest um, building block of life wasn't a block at all. It was an interaction um, between particles and that uh -huh. you could have all the particles in the world but if you didn't have the interactive connection between them, they ceased to exist. And so the universe is not actually made up of particles as its smallest building block. The smallest building block is an interaction. And, um, and understanding that even in the work of um, physics, biology, and then we come to the work of collaboration, it is in those, it is the interaction itself that um, creates what's possible. And and so you come to a team, like you're just describing Shana, and the ways that you create space for that interaction is exactly the thing that will lead to higher performance. And that will ultimately lead to better outcomes, better revenue, better growth over time and more effective um, growth over time. Um, it all comes right down to those very specific conversations that you just named about the code. Um, about the choices that are being made to prioritize, you know, user experience or the feature, whatever that might be. It's those interactions that are the heart of both our universe and our organizations. I think that's a wonderful place to put a pin in it. Brandy, what do you got coming up that you can share that people can reach out to you and chat more about? Well, I would love you to reach out to me because I'd like to hear what this looks like in your organization and what you're noticing and experiencing. You can find me uh, at my website, realworkdone.com slash book. And then you can learn all about the book and where you can get it and, and get some added tools and resources there. You can come find me on LinkedIn. I'm having a lot of conversations about this and I would love more people to be a part of it because as we expand our understanding and understand what actually works, we figure out how to do better. So I'd love you to come find me there as well. Beautiful. Well, thanks again, Brandy Olson, and for your new book, Real Flow. It's been a delightful conversation. Thanks to both of my co-hosts, Jay and Shauna, and also to you, our listening audiences. You are all exceptional. If you enjoyed this episode, give us a review, a rating, leave some comments on your podcast platform of choice. If it's your first time tuning in, where the hell have you been? <laughs> this is year five, isn't it? Episode 300 and something. I've Seven. Lost. Seven. Subscribe. You won't miss the next one. If you'd like to join the discussion and share your stories about paddling against the flow or the flood or damming the flood, whatever is working for you, or planting your garden, 
join us on our Discord server. See agileuprising.com or the show notes for a link. And finally, supports from listeners just like you will help us buy heirloom tomato seeds for the Burns' <laughs> new garden. <laughs> As she's not making a commitment on when the first program increment will deliver a valuable basket of heirloom tomatoes, but but stay in touch. We'll, we'll share the bounty of the harvest. Until next time, this is the Agile Uprising Podcast signing out. So I'm always torn about stopping the recording because we always have such wonderful conversations <laughs> afterwards. And I'm like, I hit the stop button. So I'm going to leave it, <laughs> but we can edit the rest of this crap. Yeah, we, we, we'll, we'll trim it all. I was a okay. random thought, uh, Shauna, when you brought up permaculture, I started laughing because Peter Merrill, somewhere in Tasmania right now, Peter Merrill just sat straight up in bed. Because that's one of his key X scale behaviors is the idea of permaculture and mm. and you were not we're not building a machine we're planting a garden, yeah. um, which is really kind of brilliant and I love him to death but he's definitely out there shout out to Peter he's kind of nuts and your point Brandy you talked about human beings being exceptional and the first thing that thought in my mind is a book I just bought that's in a random pile somewhere um, if what if Nietzsche was a narwhal is the title <laughs> and it talks about the human exceptionalism. And mm. what if our exceptionalism is actually going to prove, prove to be our undoing because mm. we're so smart, we're actually stupid and we're going <laughs> to, we're going to ruin things. And it was, it's, I, it was 300 well, something pages it, and it was like, that oh, our risk, right? Like, I think that's mm-hmm. our risk is that we will stray so far from what is possible as human beings showing up and trying to do things together that we we will cause our own downfall, which you see it happen all the time. And um, yep. that is, I think that's what's at stake, right? Like that's all, that's really what's at stake is um, that we will, we, the other thing I think about in this, and, and I say it in the book too, but is this idea that humans are how we have always solved problems and how we always will solve problems. And, um, and I truly do and deeply believe in our capacity to be collaborative and to do good work. Um, but I think that we hold that with us, this, um, this risk that other mammal species and our fellow, um, beings on the universe don't have to carry in the same way because their Mm -hmm. evolution sets them on more of a right path, uh, more times than not in our evolution. Um, unlocks a huge amount of potential, but also unlocks a lot of harm and risk. Yeah. And, and that is what, that is the responsibility we hold. Um, yeah. Especially as leaders and organizations, right? It's a tremendous responsibility. Um, yeah. yeah. The, the, are high. I love the, I love the quantum physics stuff you brought up because I actually just finished, um, not finished, it was a couple months ago, Carlo Ravelli's book, The End of Time, where he talks about how we as humans, time is not a construct in nature. Time mm-hmm. is something that we use. Yeah, and if, mm-hmm. if you think about it, nothing is, his line in the book, which I, I owe him royalties to, nothing <laughs> is, everything is becoming. So when you look mm-hmm. at the Rocky Mountains, mm-hmm. we see them as mountains. On a mm-hmm. long enough timeline, that they're probably eventually going to be hills. And they mm-hmm. probably were 50 times taller earlier in history. So when mm-hmm. you think about that, and, and that ties to your idea of thinking about an ecosystem, yeah. you want to create a healthy ecosystem with permaculture. Here we go. I'm tying all these things together. That's going to outlive us, mm-hmm. right? All these pieces are tied together. And that was, yeah, I really enjoyed this. We didn't even talk about the whole, you talked about capacity Tetris, which made me laugh out loud because yes. I have been part of that Tetris game where I've said, as my project manager, I get 30% on this project, 40% on that project, 20% yes. on that project. It's like, and it's the most terrible <laughs> Tetris right. game to play. And I said this to our director of, a P- of our PMO. And I, and I said, do you think maybe we're being unrealistic in, in how we're treating people? And the response is, well, the work needs to get done. It's that false, it's that fear of lost productivity. Mm, yep. it, it gets everybody. Mm-hmm. And- yeah, no, this this was this was a really, really fun read. I thank you very, very much for sending it over. It was fun. It was wild.
Uh, again, I owe you royalties for that whole page of the 20%, 20%, 30%. Oh, no. The, um, <laughs> I drew my drawings uh, because I'm not an artist and I chose to do my own illustrations because I hoped that it would inspire others to do the same, um, that they too could draw some of these things and have a different conversation. It's that drawing of you know our project capacity that got me started on this topic to begin with because I would draw that out wow. for groups that I was working with and the audible like sighs in the room were of palpable yeah of like you mean it's not because I'm not a high performer that's what Brandy was doing the first time I met her with a pitcher of water and yeah. then somebody was testing out the capacity in front of the room and we were all participating as impediments and it was such an eye-opener and it's like oh my gosh how does Brandy get to every class every meeting to show <laughs> what this looks like in practice as we think of multitasking as like I'm a mom. So it's like cooking and doing a phone call at the same time. Like mm. nobody's thinking about it as multi-million dollar deals on one side and like mm. family caring on the other and all mm -hmm. the different things. Um, that's pretty, I just want to, um, Brandy, like the, the part in this book that like really meant so much to me. And I said it, I, I biffed it, but redefined performance, like maximizing human potential over the long term instead of the short term. And it's everything our friend was just talking about. Yeah. And I don't know until I read that sentence when I had ever taken 10 minutes to think about how do I set myself up for the long term instead mm. of the short term. And part mm. of that, Randy, is like why I'm embarking on a different life, because I want to be here for the long term. Mm. Like for some of us, that's, that's what's going on. Like, we're a little afraid <laughs> that we won't mm -hmm. make the long term. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. And I think that's huge. And I think that's the alternative, the Webster dictionary definition, it frames performance as, and we didn't talk about this either, but as like a competitive thing. Yeah. And I think that is such a low bar for any company to set. What yeah. a low bar to say high performance means just doing better than your competitor or catching up to your competitor. Yeah. And, and the other thing that is so key in what you shared, Shana, is if we're looking at this individually, we need to make those choices for our well-being. So we can continue that work. If you're a leader of a company, you need to look at this from the perspective of how do I design a company that doesn't put people in that choice? Because individually, you should choose what you need to do for your own well-being and humanity um, because you shouldn't sacrifice yourself to do good work unless you're going out you know, to be a doctor and doctors without borders and go into you know, mm -hmm. a conflict zone that self-sacrifice shouldn't be on the table. And so we need more leaders to look at what they need to do to design organizations that don't put people in that position. Anymore. It's the bias of zero sum, right? We automatically assume it's if for me to succeed, you have to fail. And yeah. we are completely missing the forest with the trees or we can all be equally successful. Mm -hmm. And you have to reframe leaders' conversation. Every day I hear the word, resource oh and where's the meat widgets almost 2023 meat and, widgets. And, yep. and and so much more the conversation is militaristic you know the war room and the and we need mm -hmm. some more of this spirit and and so until leaders change that behavior of theirs mm -hmm. they're still stuck as organization as machine mm -hmm. and resources mm -hmm. as just optimize them, plug them in, plug them out. Mm -hmm. And when they leave, they're like, I'll just order some more from Beeline. It's not a big deal. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Uh, I, I just finished a book on, um, by Lynn Margulis. It was, she was Carl Sagan's first wife. She's an evo evolutionary biologist mm -hmm. and her, she was heterodox in her presentation because she talks about the idea of, of symbiogenesis, where we typically look at as evolution as um, branch uh, branching, where there's a random mutation in this animal, which now allows, which carries it forward, and another random mutation, so on and so forth. She had the idea of 
it evolution does not come from random mutations. It doesn't come from branching, it comes from fusion, from two mm-hmm. separate species coming together to form something that's greater than the whole. And there's a there's a corollary there. I'm still working it out between how we treat organizational development, where mm-hmm. we think that it always needs to branch off and be something better. It's, a, it's, oh, we tried something different over here. Well, that works. And then we try to evolutionary imply that across different departments, where maybe we should look at it more of a fusion function, where if these two pieces, if Shauna and Jay work really well together, let's figure out what they're doing that works really well together, because that's the evolutionary step. And mm-hmm. we kind of just, we miss the forest for the trees. And with that, I got to get going. Thank you. All very much. And do I, we got two shows for the price of one. To talk. Thank you, Andy, for bringing us all together. My pleasure. Shana, I hope you become more than just an occasional guest host <laughs> on Agile Uprising. And um, this is lovely. I hope yeah. we all get to be at a conference someday together. Someday. Someday. <laughs> all right. We'll chat soon. Okay. Yeah.